Welcome everybody to Climate Science AMA. It's really nice to have you all. So with that, Dana, I'm gonna let you take it away and introduce our speaker. Cool. Thanks, Tamara. So we are lucky to have Dr. Deepti Singh tonight, who's an assistant professor in the School of the Environment at Washington State University. She received her PhD from Stanford University in 2015 and was a postdoctoral fellow at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. Uh, at uh, Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory of Columbia University from 2015 to 2018, prior to joining Washington State. Her research aims to improve the understanding of the many ways in which climate change is affecting our society to inform adaptation efforts and disaster preparedness. Toward this, her work is centered on advancing our understanding of the physical drivers of climate hazards, such as heat waves, droughts, extreme precipitation, and wildfires, and how such hazards are affected by natural climate variability and human-caused climate change. Uh, her group's work also examines the impacts of these climate hazards on agriculture, water resources, and air quality. So thanks for joining us, Dr. Singh. I'm gonna stop share and then you can open up your slides and uh, give us a little presentation. Uh, thanks, Dana. Um, yeah, so thank you for inviting me to um, you know, talk with you about some of the work that I'm doing and um, also to try to answer any questions you might have. Um, and so as Dana mentioned, I'm at WSU. Um, I've been studying climate change for about 12 years and I thought I'd start a little, uh, I thought I'd start with giving a brief introduction for why I started studying climate change. Uh, because in my past life, I was actually um, studying mechanical engineering and then I was doing aeronautics and I was convinced that I was gonna uh, become an astronaut or at least try to be one. Um, but I actually lived near Bombay um, uh, for several years, and in, I, I don't know if any of you remember this, but in in uh, 2005, the city received um, just a massive amount of precipitation, more precipitation than they've experienced in in basically the 150 year record we have for the region, and it like brought the whole city to a standstill. And if 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 some of you probably know this, that you know Bombay is uh, Mumbai is. Uh, uh, has a population of about 10 million people. Um, so the city came to a standstill. Um, a lot of lives were lost during that event. Um, infrastructure was damaged. And the impacts of that particular rain event lasted for um, several months as um, you know, flood the fl areas that experienced flooding and people that experienced flooding um, experienced waterborne diseases, the spread of waterborne diseases in those communities. Um, and so that, that kind of that event really me was like um, something that really started to make me think about um, just climate in general. Um, and then I also spent a lot of time with my um, grandfather, who you can see over here, <laughs> in, uh, in his village, um, which is predominantly an agricultural uh, village. And, you know, I spent a lot of time around farmers and, and farm workers and, um, and since then have also returned to talk talk with them as well and just it made me just realize you know how not you know even if we don't think about climate change climate variability can um, impact the lives and livelihoods of of many of these people and so for me it was a very personal reason because um, I you know I kind of 
first or secondhand experience some of the, the impacts that many communities, many vulnerable communities were experiencing. Because uh, every time I called my grandfather, this is what we would talk about is how farmers are experiencing the impacts of extreme rainfall or, or um, drought and, and how they're managing that. Um, and so since since 2010, I've been working on um, extreme weather events, uh, and I've studied a number of different types of um, extreme events. Um, and, you know, our knowledge of climate change has like has increased dramatically over the last couple of, of decades. And um, I kind of wanted to talk about a little bit uh, of work that my group has been doing. Um, let's see here. Sorry, I am. Can just turn this off. Okay. Um, yeah. So we're we're you're probably familiar with the IPCC report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, that released a few um, uh, reports last last year that um, concluded that you know recent changes in the climate system um, are widespread, they're rapid, and they're intensifying. These changes, uh, some of the changes that we're seeing in the climate system are um, in fact unprecedented in 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 at least the last thousand years or longer. Um, in particular, we have a pretty good record of global average temperature, which um, is seen on the right here in this right panel. Um, and this shows us that since 1850, we have warmed by about 1.1 degree. And that warming um, is, is unprecedented in the last 2000 years. So this is a, a longer term record of global average temperature from uh, instrumentation, instrumental records in the, in the black line and um, many other sources of um, of uh, climate information uh, that allow us to extend this record back. And so we are warmer than we have been in the last 2000 years. Um, and the rate of warming is unprecedented. And so what is how do how do we experience this right we are experiencing the impacts of this global warming uh, through its impacts on the weather conditions that we experience from day to day and in particular with extreme weather events and so i've shown i'm just showing examples of a few extreme events that have affected different parts of the us from hurricane harvey that affected the gulf coast in 2017 to the campfire for those of you in california probably remember um, uh, the the 2018 fire um, the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest um, and the winter storm that affected, you know, almost um, uh, more than half of the U.S. in, 20, in February 2021. Each of these extreme events um, have had um, economic losses or damages of over one billion associated with them. In fact, a Hurricane Harvey, which was one of the most expensive disasters, um, had damages exceeding 125 uh, billion. And we also see that, you know, with with the, with many of these events, we see a number of lives being lost. And in particular, what was really surprising to me, at least, was um, that in 2021 in the Pacific Northwest, over 1,400 lives were lost because of um, exposure to unprecedented heat. And so this this indicates that you know our systems, our infrastructure, and people are not. Uh, adapted to the climate conditions we're experiencing today, and we're experiencing um, extreme events. We know that these uh, the number of billion dollar weather disasters have been uh, increasing, 
Um, NOAA, the National Ocean Atmosphere Administration, keeps a record of these billion dollar weather disasters. And in 2021, um, there were about 20 separate billion dollar weather disasters that in total um, amounted to over 150 billion in damages and over 700 lives lost collectively from these events. Um, and as you can see, the different types of events that are affecting different parts um, of the US and the West were experiencing droughts and, and, and heat waves. And in Central and Eastern US, we're experiencing severe storms, hurricanes. Um, and so, so even though there are different types of, of disasters, um, the, the total number of billion dollar weather disasters across the US are increasing. In fact, um, this is a, a graph that shows us the number of these billion dollar weather disasters. Um, so don't worry about the different colors, but this is basically, um, the, the, the bars basically indicate the number of these disasters that happen in each year from 1980 to 2020. And um, these include heat uh, wildfires, droughts, flooding events, um, severe storms, uh, winter storms. Um, and so 2020 was one of, was the year with like the most number of these events and the total cost um, associated with these events in each year is indicated on the right column. And um, so in 2020, there were um, the, the, if the total number of um, events across the US um, uh, amounted to uh, over 500 in, in damages, 500 billion in damages. And um, there's there's clearly an increase in the number of these events. Some of this is because we're seeing more extreme events, and some of this is because these events, um, you know, are, are affecting our, our population is increased, our infrastructure that's being exposed to these events is increased, and so um, so part of it is because of that. But part of this trend is because we are seeing more extreme um, weather and climate events. Um, and these events, uh, when these uh, extreme events happen, they have, uh, you know, major impacts on not just our physical health. Of course, uh, there are some, you know, direct physical health impacts of many of these extreme events from um, heat, heat stress and heat related illnesses to um, waterborne diseases in areas that experience flooding to also impacts on mental health. So, you know, communities that experience uh, disasters are, are um, also, you know, show signs of experiencing PTSD. Um, there's, uh, you know, increase in, in violence during these events. Um, there's, you know, additional stress and anxiety associated with, with um, it be, being exposed to these events. And in addition to the physical and mental health, there are also impacts on, um, on community health in terms of increased violence, increased social in instability um, that, that tends to be associated um, with, with these different um, extreme events. So um, extreme events are affecting many aspects of our lives. They are, in addition to experiencing our health directly, they're also experiencing many aspects of our lives from the air we breathe to the food we eat and the water we depend on. Um, all of our, all of the natural resources are being impacted by, uh, by climate change and by, in particular, by extreme weather events. And for many of these types of events, we're actually now able to link individual events to human-caused climate change. So when I started my PhD in 2010, um, if you asked 
a scientist like, okay, you know, is this particular event caused by climate change? Um, most of the times people would respond by saying, well, we don't, we can say that the, these types of events are changing, but we can't really link a specific event to climate change. But in the last um, a couple, you know, in the last decade, we have seen the science of attributing individual extreme events to climate change really grow. In fact, some of my early work during my um, PhD was um, contributed to this uh, to this field. Um, you know, starting with the, with the drought in California, um, to Hurricane Harvey, to the heat wave in, in the Pacific Northwest, and to the flooding that is occurring in India and Pakistan right now. Um, many of these events are being linked to climate change. So we don't want to like again, so that we don't have like um, we don't want to say that this event is caused by climate change, but we know that climate change is um, affecting the frequency and the severity of these events. And um, so, so we the science of like linking individual events um, to climate change has advanced quite a bit. And this has happened because well, we have more data, we have better models, but we also have uh, a much stronger understanding of how climate change can imp can impact different types of extremes. So heat is one of the the one of the most well understood um, impacts of climate change. Um, if you know, with um, a small change in in, in um, the amount of warming, we see an increase in the number of extreme heat events. So again, I'll just replay this for you. So if we look at the distribution of temperature, this graphic basically shows us the distribution of temperature in the present climate. And with warming, this, it, this shifts to the right, which means that we're seeing many more extreme heat events, um, simply because we're seeing the baseline level of the, or average, you know, seasonal temperatures or annual temperatures increase because um, there's more um, heat that's trapped by greenhouse gases. And the consequence of that shift in the average temperature is that the number of extremes, the likelihood of extremes, including the likelihood of record-breaking heat, like we saw in the Pacific Northwest, and we saw this year in Europe, uh, are increasing simply because there is this warming. So this link between heat, between uh, global warming and the increased incidence of extreme heat is pretty well established. And we are seeing across the world um, uh, an increase in the number of extreme heat events. In addition to extreme heat, we also are seeing an increase Sorry, we're also seeing an, in, uh, an intensification of precipitation events. And this is happening because, uh, again, by something, by a phenomena that's really pretty well understood in the climate community, um, that as the atmosphere warms, uh, there is more evaporation and the capacity of the warmer atmosphere um, to hold moisture increases. And so for about one, for one degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature of the atmosphere, it can hold about 4% more water vapor, which means that when there are storms, when there are um, you know, meteorological phenomena that produce rainfall, like tropical storms, hurricanes, um, monsoonal systems, um, when they do occur, they tend to be heavier. And so again, this is something that's been pretty widely observed uh, across the world. We're seeing an intensification of the heaviest rain events because of this particular phenomena. The effect of this increase in heat and the increase in humidity is resulting in um, kind of a, what we consider a deadly combination. So when we have 
humid heat because of rising temperatures and rising humidity, um, we actually, um, yeah, so, so this is becoming, an, this is a growing hazard that um, is being studied in the climate community. Um, so this is the combination of heat and humidity. Um, if you, so for those of you that are from Florida, you probably are familiar with humid heat. Um, where you know humidity basically increases the, the the heat stress that we experience, particularly at high temperatures. So it makes warm temperatures feel hotter. Um, and so prolonged exposure to wet bulb temperatures, which is a common measure of heat and humidity, can result in heat-related illnesses, which or um, at temperatures uh, at wet bulb temperatures close to 35 degrees Celsius, they can be fatal unless you have some you know access to to external cooling and so uh we've actually seen that this uh, that heat this combination of heat and humidity is becoming an increasing hazard in in many parts of the world um, and people that are most exposed to this are people that uh, are involved in agricultural activities um, outdoor activities um, or construction workers or in other you know in any other like outdoor industry um, and here, you know, 35 degrees of wet bulb temperature is considered to be um, fatal. Basically, our bodies just cannot cool down because, um, because you know, with, with you normally our response is to sweat. And uh, when you're getting to, to heat and humidity conditions that amount to wet bulb temperatures of 35, um, it basically means that we cannot cool off by sweating. And so that uh, basically, you know, result that that can be so prolonged exposure to that. And by prolonged, I mean, even uh, a few hours of exposure to those temperatures can be um, fatal. Uh, and this is and these temperatures, maybe not 35 degrees, but close to that have been observed in parts of the world. Um, and the temperatures even below that can have impacts like uh, temperatures. Um, so the heat index values close to 20, 28 degrees can already um, have, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, damaging impacts on human health. Um, and in fact, during the heat wave in Chicago in 1995, um, these uh, wet bulb temperatures were close to 27 or 28 degrees. And there were, um, that was a, uh, that was a, a really, um, um, you know, there were there were a lot of deaths associated with that particular heat wave, and that was because it was this combination of heat and humidity. Um, and so, some of the work in my group has looked at how these uh, conditions are changing. Um, in particular, we we looked at the trends in the number of uh, humid heat events um, and all the areas on this map. So this map shows a number of uh, days in a year, the, the increase in the number of days in a in a decade um, uh, with uh, extremes in humid heat. And um, I've highlighted a couple of regions here. So South Asia, um, Southeast Asia, uh, the Arabian uh, Peninsula, uh, parts of West Africa, parts of South America. These regions are experiencing um, significant trends in the number of humid heat uh, extremes. And these are areas where already humid heat conditions are pretty high. So these extreme values are, um, are you know, getting close to those thresholds that are dangerous for human health. Um, in the US, the, the Gulf Coast, um, there are certain areas in the Gulf Coast and the Eastern US that are experiencing significant trends. Although um, for most of the West, for most of the US, we don't see um, significant changes in this, but um, it, this is, we're talking here, we're talking about uh, trends that have occurred in the last 40 years. Um, but moving forward, we are expected 
uh, you know climate projections show that there um, that these regions in particular that have that are um, that where you where you see significant increases and significance um, is, is so we're talking about statistical significance um, and um, areas that don't have these dots on them are areas where these changes are significant uh, that means they're be, they're outside of what natural variability would um, would result in. And so all these areas that where, you, where we are seeing significant trends already are areas where these humid heat extremes are likely to increase. And in addition to that, um, you know, parts of um, the southeastern US are also expected to see temperatures, uh, humid heat extremes, uh, you know, reach those critical thresholds, those, those temperatures that are um, considered dangerous for human health. Um, with the trends that we have seen, oh, sorry. Uh, with the trends that we have observed over the last 40, uh, 40 years, we have seen uh, a, a, a pretty substantial increase in the number of people that are being exposed to these conditions. In particular, that's because uh, these conditions are, are occurring in places where there are um, a lot of people. Uh, these are some of the most densely populated regions in the world. And uh, as a, so because of these riding, rising temperature and humidity conditions occurring in places uh, that are already densely populated, uh, we are seeing an increase in exposure to these humid heat conditions, and that's shown by the blue line here. Um, in fact, in some of the recent years, the exposure, the, the global exposure is almost uh, two to three times higher than what it was in the 1980s. And so that's a pretty substantial increase, given that over this period, you know, warming has, has really only increased by about 0.7 to 0.8 degrees. Um, in addition to these hot and humid conditions, we are also seeing hot and dry conditions increase. We are seeing that climate change is making, is increasing the risk of wildfires. It's doing that because as temperatures rise, there is more evaporation from the soils. So soils get drier, the, uh, our vegetation gets drier. Um, we're also seeing snowpack melting sooner. And so as a, as a, you know, because of the, the drying landscape, as well as the uh, you know, earlier snowpack melt, um, those conditions increase the risk of wildfires, um, uh, as well as you know droughts, um, and um, we are seeing a pretty pretty clear increase in the um, the severe like the the large fi fires that we are seeing in the western U.S. There's um, there's more area being burned um, in the western U.S. associated with wildfires. Um, and uh, that has also been attributed to climate, partly been attributed to climate change. Um, but one of the consequences I wanted to talk about real, um, I know I don't have too much time uh, here, but um, I just wanted to talk about one impact that my group has been studying. Um, so this is um, a satellite image that shows uh, smoke from the, the fires that were burning. This is, this is an image from 20, uh, September 2020, September 15th, 2020, um, where there were fires burning across um, Washington, Oregon, and California. So all the red, the areas in deep red are areas where there was dense smoke associated with fires. Um, and the smoke, uh, you know, this, the, the smoke from here, uh, we can see it on the satellite image. It, was it didn't just stay here in the Western US and it was transported um, um, across the country. Um, and on, on the ground, it looked like this. So uh, those of you who are from California, I know many of you are from there, um, uh, you're probably familiar with this, like recent wildfire seasons um, have, been, have, have uh, had a number of days where there's just 
you know, dense toxic smoke from wildfires that are that, that are present. And this is actually a real image. It's not uh, from some climate catastrophe movie. Um, and if, if those of you that are from Oregon, from the from the Northwest, uh, you probably remember those those orange skies that lasted for several, um, actually a couple of weeks. Uh, and it was really hard to even be outside. So the, the work that uh, my group has been doing has been looking at how these increases in wildfires as well as extreme heat are affecting um, exposure of people in the Western US to harmful air pollutants. In particular, we've looked at particulate matter and surface ozone. Um, and surface ozone is, is also another harmful air pollutant, which we've uh, to some extent forgotten about because it used to be a much larger issue uh, a few decades ago. We've seen you know, pretty um, large uh, improvements in air quality, but uh, both these pollutants are harmful for human health. They have a number of impacts associated with them from cardiovascular issues to respiratory issues, um, from headaches and irritation to premature mortality. Um, and, and so across the US, across the Western US and all the areas that are, um, that are in red um, with a dot on them are areas where there has been a significant increase in the past two decades with uh, days where people are exposed to extreme levels of PM 2.5 and extreme levels of, of uh, ozone simultaneously. And we have uh, found that this is mainly because we're seeing this increase in wildfire activity. Because historically, um, before we had these large fires, most of the particulate matter used to occur in the winter season, and these, these two harmful pollutants would not co-occur. Um, and so now we're, because of the fires, we're seeing this like increase in um, their, the co-occurrence of these pollutants. And we're seeing that these are affecting larger regions of the US simultaneously. So in the last 20 years, we've seen the fraction, the, the extent of the Western US that is um, simultaneously exposed to extremes in these two pollutants, uh, basically double. And in particular, in 2020, um, nearly 68% of the Western US was um, experiencing um, these extremes in these um, air pollutants. Um, this this um, increasing frequency and extent of um, this exposure to harmful air pollutants means that more people are being exposed for longer. And so we looked at this cumulative measure, which is basically uh, the number of people times the number of days people are being exposed. And we are seeing an increase in that as well. Um, and in recent like active wildfire seasons, um, they're, they're, the number of these um, of, of, or the amount of population exposure that's measured by this person days measure that we've um, that we used um, is is like almost three times the average of what was experienced in um, the the 2000s and again these have a number of health impacts associated with them um, and again, the, the people that are being exposed to this are, are the, so the, the impacts of these extreme events are being um, experienced differently, right? People that are in the outdoor industry, uh, farm workers, um, construction workers, people in the service industry are, are more exposed to these conditions. Um, and so I talked about two different types of extreme events that, that are changing, and these events are not occurring in, in isolation, uh, we are seeing that you know with the uh, with with warming and the increase and in the likelihood of many different types of extremes, we're seeing these events happen more and more 
uh, climate-related disasters happen simultaneously. So I don't know if any of you um, noticed that in this image that I had just shown, uh, where I showed all the, the fires burning in the Western US um, and the smoke being transported here, there were also, uh, there was um, Hurricane Sally, I believe, I might have gotten the name wrong, um, but there was a, a hurricane that was um, affecting the Gulf Coast at the same time. And in 2020, um, there was a record fire season in the West and uh, a rec record Atlantic hurricane season in the East. And I bring this up because the, the fact that we're experiencing multiple disasters simultaneously, that affects the, um, for one, it affects uh, the ability of communities to respond. But when you have you know, simultaneous uh, disasters occurring, there are also you know, national um, emergency response that we depend on. And uh, in 2020, FEMA was like really stretched thin because they were responding to these multiple disasters and that affects our ability to respond to these. And even in the Western US, you know, typically there's, there's resource sharing between states uh, when they're dealing with fires, but with simultaneous fire activity across multiple states, again, that affects the ability of, of communities to respond to these disasters. So um, in addition to, you know, thinking about isolated events, the, the climate communities has really been um, understanding how these simultaneous disasters are, are likely to change. And, you know, just simply by chance, because we're seeing an increase in so many different types of extreme events linked to climate change, we are um, expected to see more simultaneous disasters happen. Um, here, I, I discussed the implications of, of this for disaster management and dis disaster preparedness. But there are also implications for, uh, you know, global, uh, you know, when, when there are disasters happening, globally, um, there are implications for how these uh, how the impacts of these disasters can cascade through interconnected systems like um, the food, global food network or supply chains. Um, as these disasters happen, we see that the impacts of these are, are not distributed equally. And I think this is um, something that we, we really should be thinking about. Um, different populations experience the, you know, diff the, these, these climate impacts differently. Um, if, uh, you know, so children, um, or um, elderly people um, and uh, people with pre-existing conditions are more susceptible to the impacts of extreme events for many types of extreme events. And then um, low-income communities and communities of color experience disproportionate risks, both because they are exposed to more, um, because where they live, are they, they are exposed to more uh, climate hazards and also because they have less disaster management or disaster preparedness resources. And so so they're getting, um, they're, they're experiencing a disproportionate level of hazards um, and disproportionate impacts that are associated with these events. And this is something that we need to think about as we, uh, as we plan for, uh, you know, adap uh, adaptation as well as for our pre uh, disaster preparedness. Uh, because even if we do stop warming, well, even if we do stop reducing our, our emissions, um, we, we, you know, we still have some time before before that happens, and we still have some level of warming that we are uh, that is expect that is projected to to continue. Um, let's see if you're feeling optimistic. We're going to keep our warming to 1.5 degrees. That's still warmer than present, uh, which means that there is going to be an increase in the risk of, of extreme events, even associated with that small level of warming. And um, adapting to those um, and preparing for those disasters is really important in thinking about uh, reducing the impacts of climate change.
So um, this is, I have, I'm almost done with my presentation. I know that people get uh, really mad at me when I, when I just, you know, present really depressing information and don't give people um, um, any, any suggestions on what they can do. So, uh, so there are things that we all can do uh, from things like, you know, individual food choices, because um, those matter to collective, collectively like advocating for like transitions in um, our energy system towards more towards less carbon intensive sources of energy like wind and solar. Um, to also being part of, uh, of adaptation and response. Um, and so, for example, um, you can volunteer in um, in uh, you know in if you're if you live in a city and um, there are uh, heat waves or or extreme cold events, uh, you can volunteer at, sh at local shelters that are that are um, out there to protect. The most vulnerable in our communities. And so that's one way you can engage directly with this. Um, that's something that I, I like to do. Um, and then there's many other things that you can do as, as you'll probably you'll probably already do a lot of this, um, you know, thinking about who you vote for if they are, um, um, if they are uh, thinking about climate adaptation and, and preparedness, um, learning about climate change and how it's going to affect us and um, and the many ways in which it's already affecting our food, water, energy, um, our health. Uh, educating other people can really help volunteering in the way that I, one of the ways I just mentioned, but there's so many other ways to do that. And then also to advocate like um, you'll already do. Um, so with that, I will stop. I know there was a lot of information and I'm happy to, uh, take any questions. Hopefully I didn't go too long. No, no problem. That was a really informative summary of climate change impacts on extreme weather. So thanks very much, Dr. Singh. Um, so if you guys have questions, um, go to pollev.com slash ccl123, uh, which Tamara has pulled up on the screen here, screen here, and you can ask questions there or upvote uh, the existing questions. Um, before we get to those, I'm going to abuse my power here and ask a question of my own. Because um, you were talking about the intense humid heat in that's especially in areas like India. Uh, and I was wondering how people like are people in those areas uh, able to adapt to that increasing humid heat? Um, like, for example, um, are they installing more air conditioning or anything like that? Um, because we, I think we also saw somebody in the chat actually mentioned that in the, the heat wave that just happened, there was a, a relatively low uh, incidence of uh, heat-related deaths, it seems like, during that event. So, like, how are people coping with this intense heat and humidity? Yeah. So um, there are a few different things that are happening, um, you know, and that's when we see... Um, so there's there's more education, there's more um, there are more resources into helping manage uh, and cope with these disasters. So there are cooling centers that are open, um, like especially in cities like Delhi, there are places where people can now go. Um, and so there's there is a reduction in just the exposure of people, um, people that are outside. Um, that, you know, like agricultural workers, they tend to shift the time in which they're, during which they are out on the field. Um, so there's, there's some shift in like, when they are working, um, uh, when they're, when they are outside working. Um, so that's a combination of, you know, factors that have led to lower deaths associated with this. And I think a lot of it is just preparedness and, um, the part of cities and communities. 
Okay, cool. Thanks. Which is the opposite um, of what we saw in the Northwest. Uh, because a lot of people don't have access uh, to air condition, didn't have access to air conditioning here in 2021. Um, and we, we sort of underestimate the impact of heat. Yeah, and in the Northwest, it was like, people really aren't accustomed to getting extreme heat waves, whereas I guess places like India, it's, it's more normal. And so they're more uh, prepared for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Okay, so next question here is, what do you think about geoengineering, such as spreading atmospheric particulates? Uh, this would only be done as we approach or go past a tipping point and hopefully not stop these CO2 reduction efforts. Yeah, I think the second part of that question is the important one that uh, I think our priority should be reducing our emissions. I think that some of the research that's been done in geoengineering suggests that there are negative impacts that are going to, um, that, that these geo, some of these geoengineering efforts can have. Um, and so that has consequences um, because, you know, one, uh, I think, I think um, there isn't really like an international policy on geoengineering. And so if there are countries that experience negative impacts from these efforts that can just kind of have cascading effect, effects on, um, on inter-regional conflicts. And I don't think we want that. And I think there's still a lot more to be done before we even think about, um, a lot more to be done in terms of understanding the impacts of this before we think about implementing it. So I think, um, advocating for reduction in CO2, which is what we understand pretty clearly. And in fact, recent research has shown that if we if we reduce emissions, if we reduce CO2, the impacts of that can be felt pretty quickly. So, so I think that is, um, while we can continue to do research in geoengineering, um, I think focusing on CO2 reduction efforts is, is, is um, I think, more effective. Yeah, I think there seems to be a general consensus that geoengineering is like a, a break glass in case of emergency type of thing where like we, it's good to do the research and be prepared in case there's like super, super emergency, but we'd rather, we hopefully won't have to go into that area. Yeah. Okay. Uh, do we know how much climate change contributed to the terrible flooding happening in Pakistan? Uh, yes, so there was a study that uh, actually just got published a couple of days ago. So there's a, there's a group called World Weather Attribution, um, and you can go to their website and um, and and look at the results of that study. Um, so they they did they they do this thing called rapid attribution because you know as you know we as I as I mentioned we we talk we we have a pretty good understanding of how temperature and precipitation extremes are impacted by climate change, and so there is a, a methodology to just go and do this sort of attribution when these events occur. Um, and there was a, an international group of scientists that looked into this particular flooding event and found that. Um, to some extent, uh, you know, there, the, the warming that um, occurred has contri did contribute to increasing the amount of precipitation that led to flooding. I, I don't remember the exact number, but if you go to their website, uh, you should be able to find that. Um, part of the issue with, with South Asia, which I'll, I'll mention is something that affects our ability to attribute events that are happening there is that we don't, um, our, our climate models, which are uh, one of the main tools we use for attribution, um, have issues uh, with, with um, simulating some of these 
processes there. And so that that has created a challenge in attributing some of the events there. But overall, we do see an increase in uh, extreme precipitation events in that part of the world. And so the type of events we, we saw this, this summer with, with multiple heavy rainfall events affecting the region that resulted in the flooding, um, that is consistent with the trend and uh, consistent with what we expect to happen with climate change. Cool, thanks. So are the monsoons in that area one of the things that climate models have a hard time with? Yes. Yeah, seems yeah. like maybe complicated for sure. Yeah. <laughs> okay, tipping points. At what point do you expect tipping points to occur? So any particular tipping points that you're familiar with? Yeah, I think the, so um, the just Arctic sea ice melt and and a change in sorry the the melting of um, uh, ice sheets in the Antarctic those are are tipping points that um, studies have found are 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 likely to happen in our in our lifetimes um, depending on the level of warming that 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 does happen um, and there was a, a really nice study just a couple of day, a couple um, months ago that um, has has talked about the likelihood of these even under the the moderate levels of forming that are projected. Um, there's that, and then there's also the Amazon. Uh, the Amazon um, is expected to, like there's, there's likely to be a lot of drying there, and because of feedbacks within the climate system, um, that can result in, in what's called um, Amazon dieback, so there's like forest dieback, which can um, affect the forests and and ecosystems in that region, um, just because they can be like a kind of this um, drying, um, drying there, which then affects the amount of precipitation that falls, which further increases the drying in that region. So that's that. Those are tipping points that um, that are, I think, expected to happen relatively soon. Um, the the one I mentioned in the um, Arctic and the Antarctic, the effect of those are to reduce um, albedo, which further exacerbates warming. Um, so albedo is basically how much um, incoming solar radiation is is reflected. And so as we have less ice, um, that can um, increase the amount of warming because there's less ice being reflected, more being absorbed, and those kind of tipping points can can um, uh, are are pro are projected to to happen, or are there's some evidence that like they're already happening? Okay, thanks. Um, so rural Americans, ranchers, and farmers are deeply skeptical of climate change doomsayers. Sometimes, uh, droughts, fires, and floods have always been the reality of making a living off the land. I'm eager to hear ways to present long-term climate models that they'll believe any help would be appreciated. Yeah, I, I think I think unfortunately, uh, climate change has well, I guess it is a political issue, um, and and it's become divisive. And and I think if it, you know, presenting you could you could present data, which uh, as a scientist that's what I love to do, but that's not always uh, the most effective. I think um, you know, I think you could you could explain to them like the basic sort of science of 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 what's happening and and potentially um, you know explain to them like the things that we're seeing are, are consistent with with what the science understands and what the models project. And I think rather than focusing on whether it's human caused or not, and I think that's the problem that, that happens is when we talk about human caused climate change versus, um, you know, just, we just talk about 
climate change. Um, I think as long as you can like communicate to them that you know we we know that these are the sort of risks that they're they're likely to experience to some extent, um, and present information to them about like rather than talking about attribution of climate change to human activities, which is I think what creates some of the issues. Uh, if we just talk about the knowledge and 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 the kind of and present information about like the types of risks they're likely to experience and that they need to prepare for that I think can help. At least that's what I try to do is to focus on on just um just you know what what the science tells us. Yeah and actually I was just seeing um there was a survey published la last year that showed about 80% of farmers now believe climate change is occurring which is a really big shift from a few years ago. So yeah. I think, yeah, when you're growing crops and seeing the direct impacts, then sooner or later, it becomes pretty clear and you have mm -hmm. to kind of accept it. So that's nice progress, at least among farmers. Uh, as someone who lives in Florida, our biggest concern about climate change focuses around sea level rise. What are some resilient tactics we can take so we can advocate pertinent steps to the community? Yeah, so the direct impact of sea level rise is that there's likely to be more flooding. There's more likely to be more flooding when even even without storms. So what we call as sunny day flooding, um, and also increased flooding when storms occur. So higher storm surge would would cause more flooding in in coastal areas. And so thinking about how to you know um, uh, basically. Well, there, there are multiple ways things that can be done. There are nature-based solutions, and then there are things like seawalls that can be built to um, to reduce um, uh, the risk of flooding. Um, so, thinking about like how potentially wetlands can be used, like expanding, uh, increasing wetlands can can help um, uh, reduce the the risk of flooding. Um, so there are some solutions like infrastructure solutions like that that can be um, implemented and that are being implemented in, in many places. Um, and, and the concern, you know, a lot of times the concern is that um, um, many people that many, many times when these events occur, the communities that are experiencing that flooding are um, uh, often community like low income and communities of color that are in um, areas that um, like low-lying areas that experience a lot of flooding. So thinking about how to uh, invest more resources to reduce the risk of flooding and, and increase disaster preparedness resources um, will uh, both help towards um, uh, reducing the impacts as well as being resilient to um, increasing impacts of sea level rise. Cool, thanks. Uh, oh. The Kigali amendments. So the Senate, I think, just ratified the Kigali amendments to the Montreal Protocol, um, which is mm -hmm. basically helping to phase out uh, chlorofluorocarbons, which are very potent greenhouse gases. So do you have any thoughts on the importance of that? So I think we can uh, draw on the success of uh, the, you know, the Montreal Protocol, um, because that was, again, an international problem that was recognized and immediately acted upon by countries across the world to reduce um, you know, ozone depleting substances. And so um, there are many similarities between the, the, um, 
policies and like these kind of these international protocols um, that were in place to reduce ozone depleting substances. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the Mon Montreal Protocol was really effective in, in, um, in an international, basically gathering an international effort uh, to reduce uh, you know, uh, aerosols and um, these chlorofluorocarbons that, that impacted the um, ozone layer, different from ozone that I was talking about earlier. Uh, this is the ozone that's in the upper atmosphere, uh, in the stratosphere, actually. Um, and so the ozone hole um, has 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 actually responded. Um, there's been more like stabilization of the uh, ozone layer, um, uh, the ozone hole. Sorry, and um, the, this this Montreal Protocol was really effective. So drawing on principles of that to um, getting an international climate agreement is, I think the kind of best thing we can hope for. Um, there are many similarities, as I mentioned, between like the Montreal Protocol and, um, you know, efforts to have international um, policies on, on climate change. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, just, I think that's kind of, yeah, I'm not sure what else I can say about that. But it's, it is something, it's a success story we can rely on for, for international cooperation. Yeah, and it was nice to see like a bipartisan support for it in the Congress this year. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'm concerned the statement about the warmest in 2000 years leads most folks, I think, to conclude that it must have been warmer not long before that. So maybe things will reverse and cool again. Uh, is there more we can say about why they're, why we are, uh, I can't read the last part. But why basically why it only goes back 2000 years? Uh, why we're just addressing the last 2000 years? Yeah, so the reason we say the last 2000 years is because we have, um, well, for two reasons. One, um, it is that's a time period that, like, we like humans as we know today have have lived. Uh, that's part of the reason. And the second kind of the, the second reason, the main reason we actually look at that 2000 year period is because we have the most uh, reliable record for that. The most, um, uh, you know, we have, we have tree ring data, we have corals, we have, uh, you know, other sources of, of climate, paleoclimate information that can give us a pretty reliable record going back to 2000 years. We do have longer term data than that from ice cores um, that show that actually, you know, before then um, there, there were these like glacial interglacial cycles. Um, so over the last 800,000 years, we currently presently, I mean, you know, from, from these uh, ice cores, we can get uh, the concentration of CO2 and we can sort of estimate the, the temperature, um, the global average temperatures. Um, and so, you know, basically from that ice core record for the last 800,000 years, we, we, we have seen that, um, present levels of CO2 in, in the atmosphere are highest, higher than they have been. During glacial interglacial cycles, they used to be between 180 to 280 parts per million. We are close to 420 parts per million. Um, and and um, you know, based on our temperature record, going back to that, which is you know, beyond 2000 years is less certain, um, we, we can kind of infer that they, that temperatures were um, not as, were, were not as warm as they are today. And there have been multiple, you know, studies that have like tried to estimate temperatures using different sources of, of uh, paleoclimate information and, and have found that, you know, of course there were times in Earth's history when um, the Earth was warmer. Um, they're like in the, the uh, Paleocene, Eocene thermal maximum, I 
things like close to like 65 million years ago when when uh, when the earth was very different than it is today it was you know 10 to 12 degrees hotter um but we haven't seen the kind of um, rate of increase of global temperatures based on the best available data uh, to be anywhere close to what we are at right now. Yeah, it does get tricky because like the further back in time you go, the larger the uncertainty gets. And so it's really like, it's hard to say like there was no period because like when it was this hot because there's this big uncertainty bar. Um, but there is also like this really strong correlation between the atmospheric CO2 and the temperature. And yes. as you said, like atmospheric CO2 is so much higher now than it was like any time in the recent past. So you can kind of yeah. infer that it's probably hotter right now too. Yeah. Um, can changes in the way we produce and use textiles like cotton help ameliorate the impacts of climate change? So I, I don't know specifically about textiles, but I think, you know, in general, like our consumption, um, the, the way we produce a lot of different different products that we consume um, are, are very carbon intensive, the way they're produced. Um, and so I think it, there, there are, um, there, there certainly can be changes, but I don't, I don't think I know specifics, can come, really comment on specifics about the textile industry. Yeah, I know there's been some recent articles about like the large footprint of the fashion industry, but I haven't read those either, yes. so. Yeah. yeah. Uh, are there certain companies or industries that especially harm our climate? Um, so, I mean, most most of the fossil fuel industries are, are um, you know, they've for years, for decades, have been misleading the public on, on the impacts of climate change. Um, and if you haven't watched this already, Merchants of Doubt is a, a really good documentary uh, to watch and a Book to read by um, Dr. Naomi Oreskes, who talks about how they've been kind of advocating for continued, um, you know, investment in fossil fuels and have continued to mislead the public about the impacts of this. There, you know, those I would say that those those companies are um, like many of the, the leading fossil fuel companies are are kind of primarily responsible for um, the, the climate. You know, uh, CO, production of CO2, but but there's also like it's hard to say because you know we have so many we have so many different sources of climate change of, of greenhouse gases. There's everything from from our energy production to construction to transportation to agriculture um, that 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 contribute greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so so we we certainly can there are like fossil fuel um, in you know, companies can um, are are you know, there's certainly attribution of uh, greenhouse gases to those companies, but many of the processes that that give us what we consume every day um, produce greenhouse gases. Thanks. Uh, we've probably got time for one or two more. Yeah, Dana, I'm going to let you take this last question right here, and then I'm going to transition us to our last closing slides. This is a good segue. Okay. So people would like to see your presentation or at least the visuals in it. Is there a way they can access um, them? Yeah, I can just send it to you and you can send it to, to everybody. Yeah, this is all public information. Cool. Dana, is there a way to post this in the nerd corner perhaps somehow? Or we can post it in the event um, of this uh, in the text of the event, this event, if not on the nerd corner somewhere. Yeah, I mean, on the nerd corner, which nerd corner is a 
a nice spot that we can plug for our CCL volunteers on community. Um, if you go to cclusa.org slash nerd-corner, there it is on the screen, um, we have a nice uh, corner of the CCL community where we you know, chat with the research team and volunteers talking about nerdy stuff uh, like extreme weather events, for example. And we do have like a files section in there so we could potentially put any put the presentation or graphics up uh, in the files on the nerd corner there and uh, share them that way. Um, so that might be a good way to do it. Um, if you are interested in logging your training, which is a great way to um, catalog what you have done in CCL, there are a couple of ways. Um, you can click this log your training at the end of each training. We have a green button and the climate science basics one, the interactive one, you can do that by going to this log your training as well. And um, you can also do it through the action tracker through the chapter and volunteer development tab by just typing the first four letters of the training name and it will come right up. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. You can join CCL if you are new to CCL, cclusa.org forward slash join. Um, Deep Deeds website is on the screen as you can see it there as well. And you can also find Deep D at Climate Chirper. I don't know your pronouns, Deep D, so I keep calling you them. So my apologies. That's fine. Um, Thank um, you. You're welcome. And uh, you can also, there's that climate science, climate science basics on the screen as well. So thank you, Dana, for um, co-hosting Deep D for all of your amazing work in the world. And to all of you who are here this evening for your passion and your concern, have a wonderful rest of your evening. Good night, everybody. Thanks, Deep D. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.